Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. Uh, as always, thank you to everybody who is out there watching and listening, especially on patreon.com slash musicisnotagenre, uh, anchor.fm for you audio files, anchor.fm slash musicisnotagenre. Both are excellent places to support this podcast and uh, everyone involved. And of course, always on youtube.com slash nickdimatteo, where you can see almost everything. Not quite, but almost. Uh, with me today, I'm very excited for this week's guest, is Paul Leshen. He is a musician, composer, piano karaoke expert, who is a frequent performer at Sid Gold's every Tuesday night. Uh, and those of you who have been watching this interview series have heard of Sid Gold's because uh, a, a recent guest of mine is uh, was Leslie Goshko. So we've talked about that place and how much I love it. And uh, I have seen Paul perform there and I words don't describe it. Uh, he is also the creator of Lesson Sessions, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, and apparently is able to predict the future through original musicals. Yeah. Paul, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing just great. Thanks, Nick. Great. Thanks for having me on. You are so welcome. I, yeah, like I said, I'm very excited about this. So I always start with this question, and I love it because everyone interprets it differently. Actually, that's wrong. Uh, that's the second question. This first question is pretty simple. How do we know each other? Okay. Well, uh, I, along with my writing partner, uh, Fred Sauter, we're having auditions for our show, Astronaut Love Show. And Nick walked into the audition, and, uh, well, he did a pretty good job. And uh, I didn't realize at the time how prodigious this man was and, you know, many aspects of his uh, existence. But uh, we cast him and uh, it turns out we have uh, a lot of friends in common, you know, up to and including friends in my upstate area. And just, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. That's just pretty incredible. And and that was actually the last, so thus, thus far anyway, the last musical show that I've performed in. And one of my favorites, uh, anybody who uh, wants to check out some incredible indie musical uh, music, look up the Astronaut Love Show. It's streaming everywhere. It's also on uh, their site, leshenandsauter.com. I was so happy to be a part of that in every way. Just everybody involved was incredible. And the breadth of music that you included in that was just, it just blew me away. That, that was kind of the goal for the music for that show was to take, you know, a certain 12, 15 year period and do as many different aspects of it in pop music that we could. Uh, it, was, it was a blast. And I love that soundtrack. It came out pretty good. Yeah, it came out great. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more later about all the recording that you do. What I think, maybe that's why I love the, I mean, the show was just funny and poignant and all these other things and just weird, which I love weird. The thing that really got me was the diversity of genres in the music. And anybody who knows the podcast that I do, music is not a genre. My whole point is saying that you shouldn't confine yourself or music itself to one style or to thinking that this style only goes here or should only do this. And that's exactly what that show did. So now the second question, which was the one I was talking about before, the one uh, everyone has a different interpretation. Tell me your story. My story. Yeah. Oh, how do I interpret that? <laughs> uh, well, Nick, uh, I was a bit of a child prodigy piano player. Uh, I could play by ear when I was 
three or four years old and uh, developed that skill over the years up until about when I was in awkward eighth grade and figured out how to pretty much play anything that I could hear on the piano as long as it wasn't like technically ridiculous. You know, I can't sit down and play a Rachmaninoff concerto like certain movie story plot lines. But um, <laughs> um, and from there, uh, you know, throughout college and beyond, it's been a struggle to try to live up to my potential that I displayed at age four. You know? um, and I always feel like I was born a little bit too early. You know, I've always felt older and yet of a different generation. My parents were the firstborns of the baby boomers and I was their firstborn. So I think a lot of people who are generation X and my age were raised with more old fashioned conservative parents, which I think aligns me a little bit with millennials. But then, you know, I have this time period in my life with dial phones and, you know, cable boxes that you walk up to and press the buttons that, you know, younger people never had. So I don't know. I, I, I always feel like kind of left behind society as it catches up to me. It's hard to describe, but musically, it's a pretty important part of my story. It sounds like it. So you're saying that you you feel like you're out of step with time in the sense that you are more uh, akin to young the younger generation? Uh, in, in attitude and in, you know, for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm a gay guy and uh, I, I feel like it's taken society 30 years to catch up to that, you know, uh, where you could jump out of the closet. And everything I wanted to happen has happened, but I was in, from the past. Uh, and and if, you know, I had this modern outlook and all of these grand ideas, like I wanted to make music with what became logic. I wanted to sit there and record the drums and record the piano and record many vocal tracks. And all I could do is record it into a Tascam. Next up in that story is how uh, when I was growing up, you would have to listen to the radio have a parent who plays you interesting music or go to a record store and have somebody drive you there and flip through and ask people what to buy to like enrich yourself musically or maybe a piano teacher local. But when you're growing up now, you have everything ever recorded available to be listened to and studied at age four and beyond. And, and the child's brain soaks things up different than our brains, right? You know, if we listen to a new genre of music now, we might love it, but we're never going to master it in mm -hmm. the way that you, if you listen to it when you were four. Okay, yeah. So just like learning a language or anything like that, there's a kind of a plasticity to the, to the brain that it's more malleable at a younger age than, yeah. yeah. And, and ditto for, for digital recording software. You know, I, I feel like a bit of an okay boomer when I'm making tracks and logic and trying to compress things. When I, I just said okay boomer and my phone just okay Googled, excuse me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Perfect example. Your device is responding to you. That, that you know, you're for. Being a guitar player and a piano player is is a, is a habit, a hobby. It's kind of like being a woodworker in in the 1990s. You know, it's it's a trade. It's it's an apprenticeship. It's dumb and it's pretty useless, honestly. It's edifying, but as a as a career, as a path, I think it's a little bit old fashioned. Wow, so. that's I she's I don't even know where to begin. I mean, so much of what you said is resonating with me. I think I'll just start with the fact that I had a very similar upbringing. Uh, not the prodigy part. I think um, I was, you know, my skill early on was probably songwriting was the thing that I was best at. Uh, I learned, you know, I trained piano and voice and all of that. And and yeah, I think, you know, I grew into my voice, but piano was the thing that I can do, but not to like this, to hear that you, you know, kind of jumped into it that way and were able to play things by ear, having a father or a parent who exposes you to all kinds of music was kind of an important thing. And I had the same thing. And I experienced all that going to record stores and having to really hunt down music and making appointments with the radio. If you knew that a certain program was on, they were going to spin a certain kind of music or whatever it was uh, to the, the effort that you'd have to put forth to experience and absorb everything that's just at your fingertips today. Not to mention, let's talk about YouTube, you know, what <laughs> a child prodigy now is all over YouTube and discovered by Ellen DeGeneres and put on the show, very cute and young and bright eyed. And, you know, there you go. There's your, there's your origin story. But for us, 
you know, what did we have? You know, a, a talent show in, in, in Setauket, New York, you know, <laughs> we, yeah. we had no way to get our songs for you get your songwriting out there, except putting on a, on a, I mean, I don't, I don't know how old you are specifically, but on a t- CD or a tape and sending it in the, in the mail with a stamp on it to everybody that you can, each one would cost about $2 and 50 cents. I, yes, I still have some of those packets. So they, they started with cassettes. I started with a Tascam recorder. I started with uh, a keyboard. I think my first one was an Antonic and then I went to a Korg O1W and I, I did you. all, you know, that <laughs> one. I, I, yeah. no way. I did all my programming on that and then would record the programming onto the task cam and would have the drums. And, and then I also had, here you go. People who are watching and not listening will get a treat. Oh, and a, a, oh, and a, a, a Alesis. Yes. 16 drum machine. Okay. 19, I think. On Reddit for free. <laughs> I'm not telling you what, but you know. Oh, yeah. And all, yeah. And, and the bouncing things down the tracks. If you had complex music and you only had four tracks on the task cam, like the whole thing, and then cassette demos and sending them to record companies and radio stations, and then eventually graduating to CDs and why. Did they, you know, the, the technology was such that you had to get at least a hundred and most of those are still in the closet here after I all those decades. Also have some kind of milk carton full of, of floppy disks, three and a half from the ONW and some <laughs> cassettes that you can't play. Otherwise you have to buy a new Tascam machine on eBay for a thousand dollars in order to even hear it. Oh yes, <laughs> totally. Totally. All those floppies. Yeah. I, I keep them. I, I'm sure someone can get that data somehow yeah. off of it, but you know, cost money. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's ah, uh, just that whole, just the whole journey of what you're talking about. And that one, my first computer recording program was Logic as well. And I know a lot of people used Cakewalk and all that, but th- that was a little before uh, me. And ever since I started with Logic, and then I moved over to I do Ableton now. Okay. I just that's that's been my life. I mean, I think the last time I was in a professional studio to do anything was maybe 15 years ago because I could just do everything at home. You know, I've done sessions for other people, but as far as my own music, just being able to craft and and imagine and then actually do everything that you're hearing in your head on a computer. It's amazing. Yes. (laughs) It frees the mind. And that brings up kind of the other, the other thing you said, which was, I'd love to, I want to hear more about this, which is playing piano and guitar and, and bass and live instruments is you is kind of useless or pointless. Uh, depending on the future of pandemia, it could be completely useless or it could be partially useless. I mean, people are still entertained by live music. It's still fairly impressive to watch. But as far as making music, you can make it with one finger as slowly as you want. Right. And play guitar I'll, for a few months if you want real guitar and just play each note. <laughs> I've done that before I started playing guitar a little bit better. Yeah. Well, yeah, and there, and there are there are things that I'll have in my head, even if I'm at a certain level on whatever instrument, if it's beyond my level, yeah, I'll just slow it down. I'll do several takes and cut the takes together until I get the solo I want or whatever that part is. And even though there are elements of that that have been done since the you know dawn of recording in some ways, not the dawn, but when, tra- when tracking came about, let's say, yeah. yeah, now, as we know, there are people out there, m- millions of streams and millions of dollars who can't really play an instrument. But it's the creativity of, I guess, how they're putting the music together and hopefully the integrity of the song or, you know, sometimes they can actually sing as well. That that brings that music across and makes it popular. If they're writing their own stuff or crafting their own image, then they are they're connected to society in a way that I feel like I can't be, you know. I, I have the utmost respect for Lil Nas X. I think he's unbelievable. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and was just a, a looking straight into the eye of culture and saying, this is what I'm putting out and it is for us right now. Here it is. Yeah. I, I don't know how somebody is able to do that more than once. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's true. God. And it's immediate and there's no real barrier between what you conceive and, and what you put out into the world. You know, if, if you... 
if you have just enough knowledge to even use GarageBand, then you're pretty much and the and the creativity to come up with something good, then you're kind of you're in the mix with the, with everyone, you know. Yeah. I like the idea, and I guess what I'll say about I in some ways agree about the playing of instruments. I think when technology shifts and when the consumption of music shifts to different formats and the creation of it to different formats, it changes the context in which other things have existed. So live guitar, live piano, you know, and that doesn't mean that that will disappear, but it doesn't hold the same power or import in the creation of music or in society as it did in a different era. Right. Well, yeah, we can go all the way back with that. Well, even probably before Beethoven, Bach and Brahms, but did, did Bach sit there as a disgruntled generation, negative 300 X saying all these people are playing pianos. Now uh, I've got all this music written for harpsichords. What are they going to do? They can do dynamics. <laughs> I could have written all that. I could do anything. Let me try again. God, right. Or did he or did he say like dynamics? That's just so over the top, you know, like, why do we need that? You know, I, I'm doing just fine with the, you know, the, the intricate counterpoint that it's I've created. You so know, emotional. it's stupid. Exactly. Exactly. Embarrassing. Right. right. These simple melodies. Simple. Yeah. Simple. <laughs> And I think he sounded exactly like that, too. So that was, that was good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I and I think that that's the other commonality that we have is that I've always felt kind of closer to younger generations in that way. And it's I'm 52 years old. I'll soon be 53, you know, so, uh, you know, and I have friends who and relatives who are the same age, even a little younger, who absolutely skew more almost boomer in their mentality. And there are Gen Xers that I get along with and actually relate to really well, but then it's kind of Gen Y, I guess, that I have, that I feel more like I'm on a, on a par with get past millennial. And I'm, I'm a little confused, but yeah, 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 same here. I have friends who uh, who don't really know how to use Facebook. (laughs) Right. No, exactly. Yeah. They have this. Yeah. They have five, People I grew up with who live in that town and are, are their kids are graduated from high school and they're, you know, snoozing toward Florida. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now let's see. Now we we got to a point. We got to your uh, Tascam era and morphing into logic. So what did you what was uh, some, I guess, the trajectory of your musical life is starting in your young adulthood? All right. Well, if we go back a little bit further, I decided when I was a child that I didn't want to get too into musical theater because then people would know that I was homosexual. So I I covered that up and I buried my musical head into some of the worst pop music ever written by the Bon Jovis and the Aerosmiths of the time and Belinda Carlisle's. Well, that should have given it away. But, um, you know. Pop music, hairband, Def Leppard, it, everybody got caught up in that. But but that's kind of where my attention went, even though I think I was probably destined, if society had caught up to me at that point, to go into musical theater and embrace that. But that left me eventually, after I moved to New York, seeing how much opportunity there was in musical theater and being dragged into it without a musical theater background, but with inherent musical theatricality in the music that I wrote. So I got involved in it that way and saw that as kind of my angle. And how long have you been uh, in New York? Uh, I moved to New York in 1998 and I left it in 2002 for two years and then moved back three oh, years. Okay. okay. I've been in and around it ever since. And other than those two years, you've, you've been involved in, I know, musical theater and, and the, uh, you know, kind of piano bar scene and all of that. Uh, well, let's start there. Tell me, tell me more about that. About piano bars? Well, either one. We'll do I'll both. I'll tell you my piano bar story. It's very depressing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, see how see how millennial I really am. I'm sitting here spinning all these sad sack of shit stories and like, you know. Anyway, uh right I, I, left, yeah. I left New York after 9-11 uh in fear of anthrax, and I moved to Portland, Oregon 
I was 20 years ahead of my time because Portland, Oregon at that time was boring. It's much better now with Grindr, with social media, with like a million ways to interact with these weirdly asocial creatures that live in this city around you. But then it was pretty isolated. However, there was a piano bar downtown called Boogie Woogies that I walked past and I decided to walk in there and find out what it was all about. And it turns out it was a dueling piano bar two pianists sit across from each other and play pop songs. And I figured I could do this. So I went in there and I auditioned for the guy and he was like, well, now sing. And I was like, oh, I haven't sang since high school. You know, I don't really sing in public or I hadn't really even performed. So I kind of just got with that program and learned how to do that a bit and ended up offered a job in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area, working at a horrible piano bar called Rum Runners in downtown Raleigh. But Through this genre of dueling pianos, I learned so many classic pop and rock songs that in the future enabled me to kind of write them. I learned all the hooks and I learned how to get a crowd to sing along to this canon of pop songs that they know, which is somewhat age dependent. But, you know, it kind of builds so that younger people start out with this music and then they learn this music and then they learn there's new music coming up and then everybody ends up with this compendium of crazy songs from their life. Um, But there are moments in these songs that people all know and there are moments that people don't know anything about musically in the same song. So I could get them to sing a certain part of Jesse's Girl and they would have no idea what the bridge was. So these books, you know, figuring out the ins and outs of pop music. And, and what made them tick is probably the biggest benefit of working in these panel bars. And then when you came back to the city, you kind of plugged into that? When I came back to the city, there wasn't such a, a scene. You know, dueling pianos is something you'll find in all of these cities that Facebook is telling you to move to because it's cheap. You know, like yeah. Oklahoma City or Des Moines. Oh, they love their piano bars. Woo! Can you play Brown Eyed Girl? Oh, my God, look at that! Oh, yeah. Uh, it is an impressive uh, musical feat to be able to do that. I have a lot of respect for dueling piano players. But in New York, you don't drink and go crazy when you watch piano players. You sit there like this and you say, yeah, that's really great. You know, that's good. So that was a bit of an adjustment. I, I play at a dueling piano scene in New York that was set up on the side outside of being a dueling piano bar. And the crowd would just sit there like this the whole time. You know, the type, you know. Long Island, New Jersey people coming in and they'd sit there and smirk and then I'd come they'd come up to me at the end of the show sometimes and they'd be like, you know what? You're pretty damn good. That was, <laughs> that was the most fun I've had in months. <laughs> yes. Not that you could tell. Yeah. Yeah. I've There's always a- been fascinated with the difference in audience response depending mm-hmm. on what city you're in. And I grew up in Philly in the Philadelphia area. And Philly has a genuine love for music and live music and even original music to a degree where they will actually respond to you. You know, they might not be the the most vocal in the whole country or, or world, but you get a response and you get appreciation in a way that you, you know, you may as well just be playing to the Internet in in so many clubs in the city, in this city. Yeah, well, in Philadelphia, I, I imagine, is, it, is this the case that people are like, this is this is ours, you know, he's here, it's Philly, it's our music. And in New York, it's kind of like, who are you? And why should I listen to you and not this person? And, you know, I have, I have this, you know, every artist in the world coming through this city every night. I think you're right. I think because it's a crossroads, you know, one of the crossroads of the world that everything is judged against that. that how do you measure up to everyone else? Mm-hmm. And even though there are people and and places here where people do appreciate music and, oh, and love yeah. it just for it's just that it exists and that it's good and that they're enjoying it. It's not like Philly. You know, Philly's one of those those cities that is it's a it's a big city with a small town feel and yeah and i'm sure there are plenty of other cities like that that i'm just not as familiar with but it's again i've just i i can understand why musicians like touring because you get such a different response that it's it's interesting just to live through but also kind of informative to what you're doing because then if you are you know you learn as a new york musician that just because everyone is doing this doesn't mean that they don't like you or that you're not doing well. Yep. And then you want the also you want to go somewhere where you feel that adulation, you know. And if you feel it, you know, if you're 
if I'm at a dueling piano bar in the past in like South Carolina and everybody's wooing and women are exposing themselves and going crazy. And then you walk off stage at the end of the night and, and you're nothing, you know, <laughs> they, uh, they were using you for a good time, you know, looking for any like artistry. They just want to be entertained. Now that and I, I was going to save this question, but it brings it right up, which is you have done so much in so many different realms of music. And we're, we're going to talk about more of those and, and each one I, you know, imagine is just a very, it, it's a different experience. There's some, you know, similarities, but you get something different from doing, let's say, a night of piano karaoke covers than you would performing original or producing a musical. <clears throat> do you enjoy all everything that you do on the whole? And do you have a favorite? Now, at this point in my life? Yes, I do. I love doing piano karaoke, I think, especially because it makes the singer really happy if you're doing it right. You know, it's it, a karaoke machine doesn't do that. <laughs> Maybe they will be happy, but I'm kind of like having a little relationship with this person next to me. I'm sending them on their way. I'm launching them. I'm moving the key. Sometimes I'm making them sound good. I'm following them. They're following me. It's very edifying. And I love to make people who are good singers, but not necessarily, you know, star performers, feel like they are that star performer. And I, I, it, it, it's a nice feeling. God, that's um, great. That's something similar to what Leslie Goshko said. And it's when I mentioned to her, I've never been a fan of karaoke as a singer or as an audience member, but piano karaoke is a whole different thing because there is an interaction there and a support and a, and a you know, you're, you're having a conversation with the singer. Another thing I love about it is that it, it really reduces the listen to me thing about performance. I am sharing that when I'm doing a piano bar, I'm, I'm doing a piano bar show tonight in Brooklyn at a kind of a queer bar that opened up this year. And I'm, I'm excited about it, but it's not piano karaoke. It's me. So I have to sit there and entertain, maybe get some people up to sing. But but that's, uh, you know, it feels selfish after doing piano karaoke. Uh, as for musicals, I share something with piano karaoke in that it's also not all about me. It's giving a song to somebody else and having them put their spin on it and feeling great about hearing something that you wrote being performed by other people. And I love that. It's not a cover. It's it is the performance. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're the case of Lesson Sessions. I've given them this song. I never performed the song. So it, it often sounds a lot better when the recipient sings the song because they're bringing something even more authentic to it. So tell everyone about Lesson Sessions. Then. Right. I, well, I, you told me this before, and I think it's a, just an incredible idea. Uh, in meeting a lot of people through the scene in New York, uh, a lot of creative singery types, <laughs> I, um, I, through my love of writing music for people in musical theater uh, and my dislike of writing songs for me to perform in front of people and putting myself on display, uh, I figured I would ask these friends if I could write them a song based on the music that they love. Shannon Conley, uh, who's a friend, who's a brilliant singer, who's the uh, lead singer of Les Zeppelin, the all-female Led Zeppelin cover band, I would ask, you know, I would send her an email saying, hey, Shannon, could you send me a couple possible Led Zeppelin song titles? so that I could write you a Led Zeppelin song. I forgot which one I came up with for that, but um, yeah, it goes like that. I wrote a great song for Kathy Cervenka, who's a, a woman of the scene uh, who loves Pat Benatar. So I, I asked her to submit me a title of a song and she sent back Monsters Among Us. And this was during the height of the Me Too movement. So I wrote a Pat Benatar song for her called Monsters Among Us that was epic and anthemic. And Pat always had this. She was always like, you know, had this secret feminist side to her, to use a Generation X and above term. She loved it. I loved it. The band loved playing it. It was great. I do it with a live band. And, uh, I play the piano. Oh, wow. Yeah, incredible. So after the pandemic wraps up someday, maybe it has already, I'm going to put together another Lesson Sessions show and do the same. And, uh, uh, I hope so. You for a song suggestion i would love that i would love that i you know it's something that we we were going to do i think earlier and it got kind of yeah, oh, absolutely i'm gonna write a song <laughs> <laughs> i think i am not misremembering this but i swear i have this 
ever-growing Christmas mix mm-hmm. on one of the streaming services. And I'm mm-hmm. always trying to find interesting songs, holiday songs, Christmas songs. And one of them was sort of based on Stairway to Heaven, but it's a Christmas song. And I swear that it was done by Les Zeppelin. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's who did it. And the fact that you know someone from that group, that's pretty awesome. Well, I have a Christmas song for you. It's called Pink Aluminum Christmas Tree. My friend Kyle Supley suggested the title, and I wrote him what was supposed to be kind of an Elton John-esque Christmas song. And he he made a video for it and put it up on YouTube. And it got the customer 4,000 views. Yeah, it was very Wow, that's pretty awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. So let's see where we are now. You so we yeah we've talked about your piano karaoke. Uh, we've talked a little bit. We talked about lesson sessions. Tell me more about your. You you talked about why you enjoy doing you know musicals. Tell everyone more about the musicals you've done. Okay, well your my experience. first uh, was actually performed in the Philadelphia Fringe Festival in two thousand five or six, I was asked by a woman who's uh, uh, somebody she'd asked a friend of mine to write the music for her show. And she said, no, but call Paul. And it was a, uh, it was a version of Oliver Twist with a kind of like adult sadomasochistic relationship between uh, the characters. So uh, bondage, BDSM, like the whole thing. So I was like, this sounds fun. And it was the first time I've ever written really to other lyrics and her lyrics Crazy as they were, they really like lined up well. And uh, I wrote a whole bunch of stuff in one night and sent it to her. And that was the genesis of this show. So it was called Twist. So we, we wrote this show. I wrote the music for her show and we put it on. And it was just one of those harrowing New York producer director experiences where everybody's stressed out the whole time. It was in the crane where we did astronaut love show. Oh, yeah. And um, somehow the soundtrack got into the hands of the dramatist's Guild, not the uh, what is it? The Dramatist Awards. What was that uh, award? Drama Desk. Oh, yeah. And uh, I was nominated for a Drama Desk for this dinky little show. And uh, I was like, Oh my god, my career! I have it now. I'm going to write musical theater. I'm going to be on Broadway. I'm going to be in Times Square. Wow. Fast forward. But anyway, um, <laughs> I was <laughs> looking for a, a new partner to write with after that show, and I, that's where I met Fred Sauter who you've interviewed. Yes. And uh, we decided to write a show about bedbugs, which was very topical at the time. Um, and we wrote it. And it was pretty successful. Eventually, it took us about 10 years to get a, a full production of that show up. Yeah. 10 years. Oh, my God. It's a, it's a monster industry. Getting yeah. <laughs> getting 100 people to you know put on a show together and all the various costs incurred in 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 Bloomberg era, New York with soaring rents and whittling attention spans. That's always been something that I have found frustrating, not, and not just in the musical theater world, but just what it takes to get any kind of traction with anything you're doing. So you've done musical after musical, among the other things you've done. And like you said, some have been acclaimed in one way or another, you know, or been you know, popular or well-received, and yet there's still not a maybe not a level of career that you that you want to attain that you that you've reached. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've experienced the same thing as a singer songwriter and, and a band leader and, and all of that, where you have this body of work that just continues to grow. And, you know, there's an audience for it because you, because the response you're getting is saying, oh, I'm not just shooting blanks here. Like there's so, there's something to it. Mm-hmm. And yet there's that certain, you know, switch that isn't flipped or that threshold that the tipping point that you don't get to or whatever it is. That's that's always been a mystery to me. Well, I, it's it's not really a mystery to me. I know myself well enough to know that it's it's pretty much my fault. You know, I'm not I'm not that guy who goes out there and hustles. I'm not good at it. I have what I call it's more than resting bitch face. It's like resting like mean discouraging like unhappy face it's just you know i i don't i don't light up a room you know i know that and it's it's a hindrance on my performing and it's been a hindrance on my career but it is who i am and i'm not going to be able to change that maybe there could have been a break when i was younger or 
you know, people prop up the young and say, this is the next talent, you know, that's kind of luck, you know, and it also helps to be really smiley, I think, and charismatic. Yeah. Wow. That's I, geez, I love that honesty. You know, you're that what kind of what you're saying is it takes more than everything that you've done, which includes your talent and experience and actually following through with all you have to have something else even. Can we talk about Jacob for a second? Are you familiar? No. Okay. Yeah. This is something, this, this is a crisis that I went through during the pandemic while I was home alone, well, with my partner, husband, but um, I discovered this guy, Jacob Collier's music. And he is, you know, he started out when he was 18 or 19 or 17, even posting YouTube videos of himself in Brady Bunch boxes singing, uh, you know, reharmonizations of of common tunes. And he was so good that I think Quincy Jones noticed it. It got to him and he called him up and said, you're a genius, man. Let's do something together. But he really is, you know, he's the whole package. He's like what what Bill and Ted's excellent adventure got on such a Gen X guy uh, was trying to get at with what would happen if you put Beethoven in the modern age and gave him these computers and music software. And oh, I was yeah. before because I knew I was going to talk about this guy. He grew up with musician parents of means in London. He grew up with logic. He grew up with an iPod with all the music that he ever wanted to listen to. And he went out and found it and he soaked it all up and he is extraordinary. But he also is very, very charismatic, very, very cute, very bubbly, very fun to watch. He's kind of a musical messiah. Like he has that kind of like Jesus thing going on, you know, (laughs) where you want to follow him. And I followed him for a while. Eventually, like, I don't like the direction that his music is going personally as viscerally but it's still absolutely ingenious and and levels above what i could come up with you know honestly it it was a crisis for me to watch Uh, those i i have been through that yeah where you see someone else usually someone younger but not necessarily who hits on something and it just hits you in a certain place that creates a crisis yeah (laughs) (laughs) have you have you ever heard of nandy bushel no Okay, so she is a, a, I want to say she's 10 years old now, but she's been famous for the last maybe three or four years, three years. She was six? <laughs> yes, she's a, a prodigy, a British a musician parents, especially the father, exposed mm-hmm. her to all kinds of music. And she started as just a drummer and has now moved to other instruments and recording and, and all of that. She at first attracted the attention of YouTube and, and everyone had millions of streams for her just spot on interpretation of, uh, uh, you know, drumming with a song sounding exactly so like what is that duo that the New York Times wrote about with the there's piano and there's drums and they do jazz. No, no. She does mostly rock and metal believe it or not uh then subsequently attracted the attention of dave grohl from the foo fighters okay and they've they have worked together now she's been on stage with him and i mean her skill is like she deserves all, all you know all of the attention that she's getting and love but it is that kind of feeling where you're like oh man you know like if if the youtube had been around when any of us were that young then maybe we would have had some early traction that we could have done something with, you know. Maybe, or maybe I didn't smile enough on my video and it got 200 views. Yeah. Right, that's it. Exactly. Emma yeah. called me up and said, oh my God, your YouTube video is extraordinary. You're so good. <laughs> you should well, smile a little bit more. You could, well, here's, you could do this, okay? This is just a suggestion. But when I was in a teen, uh, my family took me to, uh, we, we did California and we went to San Francisco because I had um, cousins who lived in Sacramento. So we spent a day in San Francisco and there was a Chinese restaurant there that was famous for every single person who worked there was was in a bad mood and was mean to the customers, but on purpose. And that became such a thing that everybody went there just to experience it. So, you know, maybe let's try that. Just lean lean into the face. I saw saw your your big scene (laughs) this year (laughs) in the movies. And uh, yeah, I don't think you have to be uh, in a good mood to uh, to be in, in Sopranos in a bar scene, and you know, part of that. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. Unbelievable. 
Oh man, yeah. <laughs> My, there's only one thing about that movie that I loved more than The Sopranos, and that's that it was very. It took a real honest look at 1968 to 70, and while these people like have a nostalgia for it in the actual show, they made it look really, really ugly and horrible in every camera shot. And I'll tell you what, I I really didn't see that coming because when I did that. It was two or three days of shooting and and only, I think, three pages of script. And they kept that script under lock and key. So I had no idea what the rest of the story was about. And it didn't need to be about that. So the fact that he put that in there, I just, oh, brilliant. I loved it. What about you? But yeah. Um, so. Uh, you want to talk I, about me? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I want to hear more about kingship because I knew about your piano karaoke and your musical and uh, maybe a couple of other things, but this is, this is something that again, we have in common in, you know, even if it's just on the surface, I'd like to know more about that. All right. Well, um, at some point in my rehearsals for a production of twist in 2006 or seven, I think six, I um, ended up at the piano with Chris Hall who was playing Fagan in this show for one night, I think, or two nights as a substitute. But I was like, yeah, let's sing something. I liked his voice. And I said, what do you want to sing? And he said, let's sing Carrie by Europe. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And he sang it just like Joey Tempest. I was just like in musical love with this guy Ah. and vowed to uh, get together and make some music. And it ended up being original music because he wasn't, I don't even think he considered himself a composer, but he was, he has a melodic knack. And when we put ourselves together, we came up with kingship and we wrote a lot of songs and we didn't know what to do with it. So Mm. uh, a lot of the songs were so big and had so many tracks and we wanted to like do the conventional thing and put a band together. But how do you do that in New York city, you know, finding, an orchestra and, and costumes and you know it, it's it's grand music do you um, feel so. like uh i want to hear more about it but do you feel like there is a way to interpret the music live where it doesn't need everything that's on the recording yes but i think people would have had to have heard the song first you know, it's it's kind of like we were writing for the 80s. We were writing albums with two sides that you'd see at Tape World and you'd buy. And then if we would perform them, you know, stripped down, people would be like, wow, that's cool. They actually were able to perform that song. It was great. And he could sing live and like, yeah. So like you'd be doing it. It was almost like a dream. It was a, a childhood band dream that we conceived of and we're still doing it you know we will get together sometimes still and plan our concept album about traveling through space you know we want to do the sequel to our band like josie and the pussycats in outer space yeah wow is that which uh where how old is treasure trail because treasure trail dates back to i think we wrote it in 2010 uh, and we just, I, I, I added some stuff this year to kind of make it sound better since I know a little bit more about logic, even though I think the treble busted out my ear last night when I listened to it. Oh no! Uh, but um, yeah, that, that song is just, it's an example of losing your audience. Um, it, it has all of these references to songs that you probably heard. <laughs> and if I play it for somebody yeah. who's 22 right now, they have absolutely no idea what any of those songs are and lack context for the song completely. And it probably just sounds like a giant, crazy turd to their ears. Not everybody. No. (laughs) Yes. Now, I I think you should write Crazy Turd down as maybe another song title. Not the one you want? Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Don't hold me to that. Um, Well, when I listened to it, it, I mean, it threw me back to the 80s big time. So, uh, but now it's almost retro in its own way. There are some sounds on that that sound like Lady Gaga's second album, which is right around. <laughs> now. Right. Uh, and so you said you did, you've done several albums with Kingship? We uh, put out a whole album. We weren't happy with the way the production came out. Uh, it, it was a little compressed, uh, even though, and I added some stuff in the studio. You know, there's always that temptation to play a clavichord or, you know, add something that you <laughs> later. But yeah, we made a really fun video for one of the songs for Wandering Sailor, which is a song about a a closeted sailor walking into a gay bar in Los Angeles in in the 70s. 
ending up being taken to the back room and having you know, having regrets. This song, this video actually achieved some success. It was on the, the gay blogs that were popular at the time. Okay. And it shot up. And we were, you know, in Williamsburg toasting to our future success. Oh my God, we have 15,000 views. And it just stopped. Like the comments were really snarky. We had this little die at the end. And some millennials were like, you know, I can't watch this. It's horrible. You know, I can't believe he dies at the end. It's so mean-spirited and anti-gay. Oh, man. That's kind of the whole, like, you know, can we look at the context here? Like, this video of this guy's life is not going to end up necessarily with a happy ending. You know, that was... (laughs) Not no, not every story needs to be like, move to New York and become a successful drag queen and have a million gay friends. This was a a, a, a sad sack of shit sailor in in the seventies, seventies, in the eighteen seventies. I don't know what it took place, but but you know, being gay was a problem back then that needed to be solved. Right, <laughs> right. For this guy, not for you know the people who paved the way for my half happiness. For you. Know? Yeah. I find I, I'm always interested in how current things like stories like that are judged in today's context and not in the historical context. You know? Like the, the absolute heroism of the end of um, Revenge of the Nerds and, you know, going back and ripping it to shreds because there's a scene in the, in the movie. That's right, right. That's <laughs> yeah. horrible. And looking back, yeah, it's it's awful. But, you know, it was the 80s and that's the movie that you get. We watched right. it. We loved it. I loved it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I loved it too. Absolutely. I don't understand the implications. You, what implications? The implications. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, okay. I want to ask this because mm-hmm. not, it's interesting that it's interesting that not everything I get from any guest is something that I'm really compelled to put into the interview because usually there's just so much to talk about. But mm-hmm. in your interesting facts, you put that you're able to predict the future through original yeah. musicals. As I said in the introduction, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, Bedbugs, let's go to Bedbugs. Um, Bedbugs was about a fascist <laughs> leader of a group of bedbugs uh, that took over New York. And he kind of had Trumpian qualities to him, even though I wrote the show with Fred as kind of a response to 9-11 and we were looking at Cheney and Bush. But not only did it predate the turn to authoritarianism, authoritarianism in America, it also had a, a quarantine plot where people were stuck in hotels in New York and they quarantined the city because these mutant bedbugs were taking over. And at some point, this character who was based on Celine Dion said that she's had enough of being stuck in this hotel. She's going to go out and get some fresh air. And her husband says, fine, go get eaten. You know, see if I care. And then he had to go chase her. Anyway, it, it, it was a little covety. Yeah. And then we wrote this small pond show, which is our third show uh, uh, together that was completed. Astronaut Love Show was the second. Small Pond was about a turtle, is about a turtle who... Uh, finds himself in a pond where uh, there are no other turtles. And it turns out that there is a cabal of frogs and toads that lord over this pond. And at some point, because of pollution, there was a level of red algae that created a a disease in the pond. And the frogs decided that they were going to have, Fred based this on Mask of the Red Death, that they were going to take everybody and have a big masquerade party in their, like, walled off complex and they blamed the turtle for this disease because he had red behind his ears anyway it was just full of covid and it was so timely and you know it had another authoritarian thing going on and and i think if i go back and look at it there are probably some plot points that kind of mirrored our response to covid at the beginning and how that played out that's incredible the authoritarian regimes response to it uh well a couple things first of all anyone watching check com because that's where i found this music and i listened to several of the tracks just this morning i love the music and which is not surprising because everything i've heard from you i've just for some reason connected with uh but yeah worth listening to and as as with every guest there are links below the video or audio so please check all of those out I have heard this before. 
artists can sometimes tap into the kind of subconscious or collective unconscious of a society to where they're picking things that are in gestation, let's say, that eventually bloom in, in the greater world. And it seems like you've done that more than once. I, 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 yeah, that's, that's a good way to think of it. It's not predicting the future. It's kind of like seeing when bedbugs came out, like, you know, there's a fear happening. Like, Where's that fear coming from? 9-11 kind of started that and the bedbugs and people's response to it was this fear of outsiders. That also... You know, started to take place, but yeah, it was a it was an instability and a fear that was uh, detected. Yeah, and I think I think that idea of whether you want to call it predicting or tapping into something is something I've always paid attention to because I've seen it happen in other smaller ways with other artists and whether it's movies or music. And I don't do a lot of uh, political songs or anything like most of it's sort of interpersonal, I guess you can say. But I have found that often I'll write lyrics that just come from wherever. And then, you know, six or 12 months later, that happens in my life or that a realization happens consciously to me that I, and I didn't know it then. You know, it's like almost taking mushrooms or something like you're you're accessing some area of your brain. <laughs> yeah. Your yeah. So uh, I, I don't know. I think that I guess this is one of those things that gets me thinking more than talking, which is not the greatest thing for an interview. So I <laughs> but I it was fine. You know, it was, yeah. No. But I'm glad that we discussed it because I think that there's a I've always felt like I've never been quite sure what role art plays in other people's lives mm-hmm. and that aside from the enjoyment of just list let's say we're talking about music of just listening to a song or having music on in the background whether it's passive listening or you're actively choosing to listen to something that's great and there's this question as to whether art is more art is a reflection of society and all of that but the but a question i posed in a different podcast which i have not answered yet because i would rather have it in discussion which is do people you or me or anyone out there feel like art has the capacity to make a make an actual difference in culture in politics and society or is it just an echo of of what is happening or could happen and make a change or did he tap into the change and you know, speak it a little early? Yeah. yeah. And I don't, yeah. And I still don't know the answer. Right. You know, and there's, uh, yeah, there's levels, there's levels. Maybe people didn't hear about the wind blowing until they heard the song about the wind blowing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That's a really good way to put it actually. Yeah. <laughs> or is any of your stuff, the kingship stuff somewhere where people could hear it? Yes, uh, our EP, The Neon Kingdom, is on streaming services. And I think our first album is uh, on Spotify as well. It's just a, a eponymous. We just have a problem um, with search because there's a, we chose a band that sounds a little bit Christian, a name. So there's a Christian band called Kingship that sucks. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to slander them. I don't, maybe for their genre, they're amazing. But, you know, if you search for Kingship on Spotify, we're going to show up, but you're also going to see these wonderful christians uh doing their thing okay okay yeah. and maybe i'll re- i'll rethink changing my band name to striper then that might not be the <laughs> best uh, option but yeah we yeah, had what's funny is i when i came up with the band name wreck i think it was in 2004 and there were no other bands with that name and now mm-hmm. there's one in greece and there's one in south america and now recently yeah. there's a couple in the u.s and and all of that so yeah you never know when you're going to stumble on something like that. It's a good name. I like it. Oh, thanks. Uh, so is there anything else that you're burning to talk about here that we haven't mentioned, whether it's something that you've done that you want to talk about uh, or just something that you've always wanted to, you know, bullshit over? I can't think of anything. <laughs> we could talk food. I don't know. We talk food. Are you, are you hungry, or are you just are you interested in food? In a, at a I'm always interested in food. You know, I always felt like you know, actually, the musical parallel to food and genre is that as soon as music started to be free, that's when people started to follow chefs and music as chefs and restaurants and and you know various cuisines as kind of a worshipful idol type of situation. Mm, yeah, interesting. You know, that's actually tangible right you can't you can't download chinese food you can you have to put it in your mouth 
it's visceral, yeah. it's real, and it's um, it's something that society latched onto 20 years after I started latching onto it. But um, after <laughs> Napster and you know that again, so. you know I, that that's I'm glad you said that because it's something you said earlier in the interview that I've talked about before in other podcasts. And I want to get your take on it, which is there is just a the way we were when the war was when we were kids where we had to really seek out music and you, you couldn't hear everything you wanted to hear at a moment's notice or even at a day or a week's notice sometimes, so, you know, or a month, uh, sometimes ever if you're, you know, now we have the streaming services or beyond that, uh, often things I am searching for that aren't on Spotify or Apple are on YouTube or on SoundCloud or something like that. That I think is one of the great benefits and the and the ability for people to conceive of music and record it and put it out immediately themselves and not have to rely on a company. Another great benefit. And yet at the same time, as you just said, music is free now. And mm -hmm. that is reflected very much so in the paychecks of all musicians in really in the world, except for people in the you know top tier. How do you feel about all this? What's your take? I think... It just didn't go well. Music had to become available on computers. And I, I think the web didn't go very well either. I think that people should have had to pay for things all along, just a little bit. If you want to listen to this song, it's two cents. If you want to listen to this song, uh, maybe not even two cents. If you want to click on a headline on a newspaper, it should be 0.001 cent, you know, and you'll rack up a bill and you'll pay it. And somehow that way, people might actually get paid. Uh, I know that's how Spotify works, but, you know, money needed yeah. to be a component from the start. And when something became free, it just stayed free. You know, I don't want to pay this. I'm just going to look it up on YouTube or, you know, I'll find a way to get this movie. The movie industry did a little better. They didn't get sucked in because it was so, the technology to stream such large things didn't exist when music fell apart. Right. So they were able to protect themselves a little better. But we got we got screwed. I think I, I'm very happy about music being available. I think it's fantastic. And it will push music forward and you know enable people in all countries of the world to hear the same music and make the same music. And <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> without, without which Jacob Collier would not be able to, you know, do what he's doing without all this free music. Or, you know. I mean, I agree. Yeah, I, you know, I had never really thought of it that way, but I, I guess because I've so kind of accepted the way the internet has developed and have been excited by the features of it that are free, that have been so useful, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're researching something or whatever else it could be, but that if we had all been compelled to say, well, it just even costs a cent to do anything, then as we know, the numbers of people who are streaming and surfing that can accumulate to the point where it can actually mean revenue maybe that is the big company's fault for saying no you cannot get this music online it's going to cost 15.99 for for eight shitty songs and two good songs and that's it you know yeah <laughs> that's, that's a problem um but you know it's it, we always like to talk about contractors and plumbers like right. you know will you come to my house and fix my toilet uh, sure. I'll be over 10. It's going to be $500. What? No. How about free? <laughs> I can find another plumber who'll do it for free. So, you know, why should I call you? That's crazy. Well, and that kind of goes back to the food <laughs> sure. idea, right? Which is that uh, these are things that are tangible and physical. They, you know, are either objects or things that have to be done physically. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the odds of them being free or, or accessible for free are much, much smaller than this kind of, uh, you know, intellectual property. Well, YouTube has enabled me to cook Ethiopian food in my kitchen. And I'm watching a video of an old Ethiopian lady in Ethiopia pounding, you know, stuff in a mortar and pestle. So yeah, yeah. I don't have to go there to get it. And I don't have to go to a restaurant anymore. But yeah, you need to, you need to taste it to know what it's like. You know, you can't just jump into a pasta making video if you've never had pasta before and do it right. No, no, that's true. Yeah. Well, uh, you've got me thinking about lunch. Mm. And uh, <laughs> Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you for this hour. 
I always love where interviews go because you never know where they're going to go. And I think we hit on some amazing things. And my great hope is that anyone watching this or listening to it seeks more out about you and uh, all the wonderful music you've done, whether it is online, free, or maybe you pay, or live at Sid Gold's and elsewhere. Uh, tell, uh, well, this will this will uh, be aired after your show tonight, but I did see that on, I think, on the on your website. Look at faces. Yeah. But yeah, uh, let me put on a happy face. You can come see me at Sid Gold's, everybody, every Tuesday. <laughs> 26th, 6th and 7th Avenue. I'll be there. You sold it. You said. <laughs> Back to reality. Yes. Uh, but yeah, again, thank you for being here. I enjoyed every minute. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you to everybody out there for watching and listening as always and for reading and for clicking and listening again to the awesome music and for sharing and reposting and subscribing and donating. And I, uh, until the next edition, interview edition of Music Is Not a Genre, I will talk to you soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.